Jamie and I and her family went to the Ark Encounter. I remember sharing that with you guys when we came back. And it was a really cool experience. Sometime down the road, uh, I think uh, we need to take uh, a church trip uh, to the Ark Encounter. Anybody like that? A church trip to the Ark Encounter? Uh, Good to know. Um, But while at the Ark Encounter, I saw a big timeline of the, the history of all of mankind. And uh, I remember sharing with you guys, I had to get this uh, timeline as well. Uh, And, oh my, if I can open it. Yeah, Jen, you want (laughs) to open that? Thank you. I want to share this timeline uh, with you guys. Hope you guys are as awe-inspired by uh, the timeline as uh, I am. Uh, But it's really cool. Starts from the beginning of recorded history. Um... Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm actually going to need around five volunteers to help hold this timeline. We have five volunteers. If not, some some people are about to be voluntold. All right. uh, This is upside down. All right. This is the end. So this is going to, you're going to want to start it all the way down there. Yeah. Spread that out. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, so you can. We're going to need maybe. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, that's a pretty cool timeline, huh? So here we can see all throughout history, there are loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads, and loads, and loads, and loads of things that has happened. There, are, there have been many, many great events that have been recorded in history. We can read about great wars, like uh, World War I and World War II. We can read about great devastation, plague, like a plague that brought the Black Death. We can read about uh, great inventions like the wheel and the printing press and how they changed society. We can read about great strong empires like the Roman Empire. We can read about great revolutions like the Industrial Revolution. We can read about great eras like the Renaissance era and great people as well uh, like Julius Caesar. And now whenever we take a look at uh, a modern uh, timeline, uh, all of these great moments in history, they all revolve around one human being, one single human being of all the billions of people that have uh, lived here on this earth. Are you trying to find uh, where it is? Yeah, I'm not sure uh, where it is. Somewhere in here, uh, this is two, this is one, right here, right here. All of history revolves around this one human being right here, and that is Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the babe born in the manger. And uh, that's how we structure our timeline. Because we look here at Jesus, and we say that everything that happened before Jesus, what do we call that? We call that before Christ. Yeah, BC. So all of this in our modern society, we know when it took place as it took X amount of years before Christ. And everything on this side of us, uh, on our side of Christ Jesus, it's A.D., after death. 
And I find that incredible with all of these events that transpire, all of these people, these empires, inventions, it all revolves one human being, and that human being is the Savior. It's the Messiah, Christ Jesus himself. Thank you. Uh, give the volunteers uh, a round of applause. Yeah. You go ahead and fold her up. Awesome. Thank you. So when we look at the timeline before Christ and after death, uh, that, was, that system started around the 9th century AD when uh, the Roman emperor Charlemagne, he adopted this system for dating acts of government. So for over a thousand years, most of civilization, most people here on earth organize the sequence of events around Christ Jesus by saying this happened X amount of years before Christ or this happened X amount of years after his death. And it's not exact to his, uh, his birth and uh, after his death either. Um, but it was right around uh, the time that he was alive. Zero AD would be when he was alive. And so when we read uh, the Bible, and especially uh, the New Testament, we are learning about the man in whom our timeline is based around. So if you're anybody who has even just an inkling of an interest in history, this has got to be like the first source that you have got to go to because it's all about the main guy in which our whole timeline is organized around. It's centered around Christ Jesus himself. And it's this way because people recognize the magnitude of who this guy was as he is no ordinary human being. He is the only begotten son of God. He was literally conceived by God's Holy Spirit. He is one of a kind. There is God at the top, then there is Christ Jesus right below him, and then everybody else. There's nobody on the same playing level as God and nobody on the same playing level as Christ Jesus either. And of all the grand things that Jesus did in his ministry here on earth. Today, we're going to begin a week-long expedition taking a look at the greatest week in the life of Jesus. So we're talking about the greatest human being, and of that greatest human being, we're talking about the single greatest week of the single greatest human being. So this week is the greatest, it's the most impactful, earth-shattering week in all of history. And that's what we get to talk about starting today. And we get to continue the story and Good Friday. And we get to end the story on uh, the Resurrection Sunday next Sunday. So if that doesn't excite you, I don't know what will. And so this greatest week in all of history uh, starts with Palm Sunday. And so today we're going to be taking a look at and reading uh, the story of Palm Sunday, uh, a week that I always look, to, look forward to uh, every year and retelling the wonderful story of how, spoiler alert, Jesus triumphantly entered uh, the city of Jerusalem. So we're going to be spending our time uh, in the book of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 21. We can read about Palm Sunday as what it is referred to today. 
But before uh, we read uh, the story, I want to try and help set the scene uh, for you all. So we can read uh, the story of Palm Sunday and actually all four gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's not many uh, events in the life of Jesus that are recorded in all four uh, gospels. Uh, But here we can see the story, the triumphal entry is indeed found in all four gospels. Gospels. And again, this morning we're reading it from the book of Matthew, chapter 21. But shortly before this, before Palm Sunday, Jesus had a dear friend named Lazarus. And the unfortunate news is that Lazarus, he fell asleep in death. You know, we all have loved ones who have fallen asleep in death. And Lazarus, was a dear friend of Christ Jesus. And so Jesus went to go see his friend who is dead, who is resting in peace. And as it reads, the shortest verse recorded in the scriptures reads, Jesus wept. I love that verse because Jesus has emotions like you and I. Jesus experienced pain like you and I. He experiences sorrow like you and I. He has been tempted in every way, just like you and I. He is a human being. But Jesus, he wept, and Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, where Lazarus was once dead, but now he has been risen from the death to life. And word of this great miracle started uh, to spread uh, throughout uh, the local uh, community. And so the crowd surrounding uh, Jesus and his ministry, they, they were aware that, hey, this guy is special. He just raised his dear friend Lazarus from the dead. And so that same crowd that heard of Jesus raising Lazarus to life uh, would have been around uh, Palm Sunday. That we're talking about the same crowd here. And so Jesus, we can understand, he became somewhat like a celebrity in their society, in their culture, among the people who heard that he raised a man from the dead. And this was uh, not uh, the first time uh, that he has done that. We just talked about that in our Sunday school class uh, in in, uh, reading through uh, the book of Luke when uh, we see Jesus raise uh, the widow's son uh, to life. And then in a couple verses down there, it talks about how Jesus was raising people to life, like it was no big deal, like it was taking place on a number of occasions. So he he was certainly beginning to gain popularity a bit. I mean, imagine the type of fame uh, that would be associated with bringing someone back to life. That's going to bring a spotlight onto you. I mean, in our society, uh, people get a lot of press time uh, for slapping someone. Uh, I, I wish I could roll my eyes all the way to the back of my head. That is ridiculous. Our society sometimes can be absolutely ridiculous. But here, Jesus, we're not talking about just slapping people. That's child's play. But Jesus, he is raising people from the dead. And so this guy, he demanded their attention. And so needless to say, uh, he, he was bringing in people's attention, and he also healed many people from their sickness. He cast out many demons. He gave sight to the blind. He fed 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread. We could go on and on and on. And so he was making a name for himself, and more and more people were focusing their attention on Jesus. And it was starting to become a more and more popular opinion that, hey, 
this man, Jesus of Nazareth, we think he might be the Christ. He might be the Messiah. We think he is the Messiah. The same Messiah, the, the, the anointed one, that's what Messiah Christ means, the anointed one, the chosen one of God that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, with Adam and Eve in the first sin. So this Messiah, this anointed one, was promised all the way with the first male and female who have ever lived here on this earth. And now for thousands of years, these Jews were waiting and hoping and, and, and looking for the Messiah to come. And many, many people tried to come and say, hey, look at me, I'm the Messiah. They would gain a small following and then they would die. Nothing special would happen and they would move on and they realized, hey, he, he's probably not the Messiah. We, we got to move on, guys. Um, but Jesus, he, he was different. And so as it was becoming more and more of a popular opinion that he was the Messiah, here, Jesus is getting ready to enter Jerusalem for his last time. And Jerusalem is like the key city for the Jews. It's like the capital city for the Jews, very similar to like Washington, D.C. for Americans. So that's this, the scene where we find ourselves into the last week in the life and ministry of Jesus. He just got done raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. More and more people are thinking that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of David. And now Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem. And so that's where we pick up this morning in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It reads, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. So first things first, we have to understand uh, the repercussions of Jesus entering Jerusalem. As as Jerusalem was currently under uh, the jurisdiction of uh, the Roman Empire, and uh, it it was a very central hub uh, for uh, the Jews as well. And uh, Jerusalem was was an important location as well, because we read in just the chapter beforehand, Jesus is is having an intimate conversation with his disciples, and he tells his disciples of some bad things that are going to happen to him in Jerusalem. We can read that in just Matthew chapter 20, uh, verse 17. The reason as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, so on his way to Jerusalem, he said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Christ Jesus, that's another way to uh, refer to the Son of God, going back to the book of Daniel. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So this is the third time uh, that Jesus uh, talks with his disciples about uh, his upcoming death as a lot of his ministry, a lot of his teachings, contrary to public uh, opinion in Christian circles and and public uh, common thought, 
is that he didn't spend a lot of time talking about his death and resurrection. Rather, he, he spent the bulk of his ministry preaching and talking about the kingdom of God. But here, Jesus, the, the, the third time that he's talking to his disciples about when he's going to die, he tells them the key location in which this is going to take place. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and it's there in Jerusalem that the chief priests and scribes are going to condemn me to death. And they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles, and I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, and I'm going to be crucified. That is what is at store for me as we enter the city of Jerusalem. Jesus knew this was the end for him. Jesus knew the repercussions of going to the city of Jerusalem. He knew that it was going to lead to his death. It was going to lead to him being mocked and flogged and, and, and not an easy death either. Not, not a simple way of dying, but of crucifixion, of dying and suffering on the cross for hours and hours. A very, very painful way to die. But nevertheless, with this knowledge, he continues his pursuit forward. He charges head on first into the city of Jerusalem. I don't know about you, uh, but I'll speak uh, for myself this morning. But if I knew that I was going to die or that I was going to be led uh, to be crucified in the city of Jerusalem, you know the last thing I would be doing? The last thing I would be doing is triumphantly entering the city of Jerusalem. I would be running in the opposite direction. Does anybody else like me in that regard? Yeah, we, we got a, a handful of us, and we got a couple of liars uh, in here as well. Uh, I would dare say that most, if not all of us, uh, would be running uh, in the opposite uh, direct direction. But he gets ready to enter the city, and so as he's getting ready to enter the city, he, he asks his disciples uh, to grab a donkey and a colt for him to ride on. And now we ask, why in the world a donkey? As a donkey, that was a humble mode of transportation. We've all seen the Moody's, the, the Moody's, the movies of uh, ancient uh, times, uh, medieval times, and these kings, these nobles, are all riding on their majestic horses. But here, Jesus, he chooses his mode of transportation as a donkey. And we may ask, why in the world a donkey? Well, apparently what's recorded for us in, in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying. And so here Matthew records what was actually written in the book of Zechariah. You can look this up yourself. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says that Jerusalem, your king, is coming to you, to you and this king is going to be mounted on a donkey or on a colt. Uh, the full of a beast. Uh, I, every single Palm Sunday, I have to look up the pronunciation of full because I know I'm going to sound ridiculous when I pronounce it foul or whatever because I don't use full in my common day language. But the full, he was riding the full of a beast of burden. And uh, this was written about 500 years before Christ was ever alive. Before Christ ever had breath in his lungs, a prophet named Zechariah said that Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you mounted on a donkey, mounted on a colt. That is awesome. That is awesome that 500 years before, a prophet prophesied exactly to a T what was to take place. That's incredible. 
To me, that this is like the greatest proof that what we have here is true. That this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 and thousands of other prophecies are fulfilled to a T. Prophecies that are written hundreds, if not thousands of years before they were actually fulfilled. Someone, if someone is doubting the word of God, that is all the proof that you need right there. Just imagine, in our current context, imagine if someone in around the year 1500 predicted what you were going to do today to a T with exact descriptions like what sort of animal you were going to ride on. That would be absolutely incredible. And that's exactly what took place here. And so Jesus, he was getting the donkey. And uh, so Jesus, this humble mode of transportation, it's interesting because donkey is humble. But also Jesus, Jesus was letting the people know that, hey, I am your king. I am your king. Because if you recall from the prophet Zechariah about 500 years ago, he said the king was going to come to you riding on a donkey. Guess what? I am that king. And so he was humbly exalting. Now listen up, guys. I am your king. I love that. We continue in the story in verse 6. Matthew writes, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. So they went and got the donkey. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so Jesus here, riding on his humble mode of transportation, the donkey, humbly exalting that he is the king. He's entering the gates of Jerusalem, and there's a crowd around there, I imagine because they just heard of the many great miracles that he had performed, and I guess through a spreading of word of mouth, they, they recognized that he was coming to Jerusalem. And so the crowds, they took off their cloaks, they laid their cloaks down on the road, they took palm branches, they laid the palm branches down on the road, Palm branches are important because they are a symbol of victory. I mean, the crowds, when they were laying down their palm branches on the road, they were signaling that Jesus is bringing victory. Nobody's going to have victory over us because we have the king and he is bringing victory. And here's our symbol, the palm branch, which represents victory. And as they were laying down their palm branches, laying down their cloaks on the road, submitting to the king of the world, they were shouting, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The story of Palm Sunday is the only place where Hosanna is found uh, in uh, the Bible. And I know we talked about this before, but many people uh, refer to as Hosanna as meaning exclamation of praise. And no doubt uh, the Jews were exclaiming praise to Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. But more modern scholars believe that the original intent of the word was, me was to mean save or save now. 
So when the Israelites were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, they're saying, save us, save us, Jesus, and save us now. As they, the Israelites, they were living under the harsh Roman rule. I mean, the Roman empire, they had a lot of power and everybody uh, was in submission to them because of their might and power that they had. And a lot of times, the Roman Empire did not handle uh, their authority with gentleness and kindness and respect. And rather, it was a harsh rule, a rule that the Israelites wanted saved from right then and there. Now, as we continue the story, we see that that didn't take place right then and there. Um, but rather, they, they, and they thought all of this because of the prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the son of David, the Messiah is going to go and establish a kingdom here on earth that will wipe away every other nation. And they thought he was going to do that right then and there. Uh, they just weren't aware that this was going to take place at his second coming, uh, a, a, an arrival, a coming that we are waiting for uh, to this day. The crowds, they also exclaimed Jesus as the son of David. And I want to point that out because that's so important because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, we can read the Davidic covenant, one of uh, the most important chapters in the Old uh, Testament in my eyes, where God is talking uh, to King David or God through a prophet is talking uh, to King David. And uh, God promises David that his offspring would establish his throne and his kingdom forever. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. They were recognizing that Jesus was that offspring. Jesus was the descendant of the son of David that was going to establish an everlasting throne, an everlasting kingdom that would wipe every other kingdom off the face of this earth. So you can only imagine, we can only begin to imagine how pumped and how excited this crowd was to see Jesus, their king. Of all the events in history, this has got to be one of the single most important events that I would have loved to witness in person. It's Jesus triumphantly entering the city, and it was a very public showing as the crowds were pumped, they were excited, they're shouting praise to Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. And again, we have to remember that this all took place with the knowledge, the knowledge that Jesus had, that this is where he's going to be led to die. And it wasn't going to be a quick and easy death. He knew he was going to be mocked. He knew he was going to be flogged. He knew he was going to be crucified, an awful, awful way to die. I don't know about you, but, but me personally, I'm not really, uh, I'm not scared of death in itself. Nothing about resting in the grave until Christ comes back scares me, not, not even an ounce of me. But what does scare me is the process of dying. And, and the idea of taking that last breath and the pain and the suffering uh, that we may experience. A lot of us may think, oh, I just want to die uh, in peace in a restful way, an easy, simple way. But this was not the case for Jesus. He knew that he was going to die, and he knew that it was not going to be simple. He was going to be mocked and flogged, whipped with shrapnels of metal 
that would stick into his body as they peel it off and rip his skin off. We'll talk more about that on Friday as well. And ultimately, he's going to be crucified. And Jesus, he could have run away from Jerusalem. Uh, this is uh, probably what most everybody uh, would do, uh, myself included. He could have uh, secretly entered uh, the city of Jerusalem, or he could have boldly and triumphantly entered the city where he knew he was going to be tortured and die. And let me tell you, that is exactly what he did. That is your Savior. That is a savior who is bold and courageous, and he knows the end. He knows what's at stake. He knows that he's going to have victory over death. He knows in the end, he's going to stomp on the head of Satan. He knows that he's going to establish God's kingdom here on earth for the rest of eternity. That is your savior. That is my savior. We worship a good God. We worship a good God who blessed us with a wonderful wonderful Savior, his Messiah, his Son, Christ Jesus himself. So this is where we leave off today in the greatest week of all of human history. As Jesus triumphantly enters the city of Jerusalem, the crowds recognize him. They recognize him that this is the son of David. At this point in the story, the good guys are winning. The crowds are on fire. The people are ecstatic to have Jesus in town. They're singing praise to him. The king is here to save them. But the story is just getting started. There is a lot that takes place in this one week, this one week that makes it the single greatest week in all of history. And so you got to join us on Friday at 7 for our Good Friday service, and you got to join us next Sunday as well, starting at 8, to finish the story of the greatest week in all of history. And man, I love this story. There is no single story greater than this. It serves that when we talk about Palm Sunday, it serves as a type or a prelude to when Jesus is going to triumphantly, to triumphantly descend from heaven to earth. And as we celebrate Palm Sunday, as we celebrate the triumphal entry, we have to ask ourselves, are we ready? Are we ready for when Christ is going to triumphantly enter again? Because let me tell you, that was just round one. Jesus entering the, the city of Jerusalem, that was just round one. And the magnitude of round two is going to be exponentially bigger. The trumpets are going to be blasting, sun shining, Jesus descending from heaven to earth, a sight for all people to see. And when he descends from heaven to earth, every Christian is going to be raised from the grave. Your ancestors of your faith, our forefathers of our faith, your loved ones, have been obedient and faithful to God and his son, Jesus Christ. They're going to resurrect from the dust of the ground. They're going to ascend to the heavens to meet Jesus in the sky. It's at that point that you and I, if we remain obedient, if we are ready for this triumphal entry, it's at that point that our bodies will go from perishable to broken to our aches and pains 
and sicknesses and diseases and will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, the snap of a finger, into the imperishable and the perfect body. Say bye-bye to your aches. Say bye-bye to your pains. Bye-bye. Amen. That's right. Bye-bye to the sorrows of this world. That is what is at stake in round two of the triumphal entry, and we've got to be ready for it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for uh, this wonderful uh, event in history as your son triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem, knowing knowing everything that was at stake. And so, Father, I just pray that everybody here, this church, that we all will be ready for the return of your son, Christ Jesus, when he establishes your kingdom here on earth. And Father, I pray that hope for that second triumphal entry, I pray that hope drives us day in and day out where we seek to grow closer to you. We seek to expand your coming kingdom as well. Father, we love you so much. We cannot thank you enough. We cannot give you enough praise and glory and honor. Father, it's in your son's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.